a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Good evening and uh, welcome to our evening service. If you have uh, Hebrews open in front of you, it'd be very helpful to yourself and to me tonight as we look at Hebrews 4, which you'll find on page 1203 this evening. So page 1203. Let me just give you a moment uh, to get that out. And I'm going to pray for us tonight as we come to this passage on rest uh, that we've just had read to us as well. So let me pray. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Fathers, we come to your word, which you are telling us is alive and active, that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, that it can penetrate that it can judge our thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing is hidden from your sight. Father, we're scared this evening because this is your active and living word. And we pray graciously teach us what it is to follow you, to be faithful and obedient. For we long for that day, Father, when you will say to us, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. Lord, help us this evening, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. 
mid-morning on a Friday, Valerie will make herself a cup of tea and go and sit in her conservatory, which looks over the garden. And she'll read and she'll pray. She often at these times reflects on the past week, and sometimes she'll allow her mind to wander over the past 80 years of her life. She's a deep sense of thankfulness to God for all her goodness, for the goodness he has given to her, even during the ups and downs of life, which seem, uh, saw her cope with the loss of her husband of 50 years and many dear friends as well. Valerie is more looking forward these days than looking back. She's conscious in God's economy that her years are shorter now, and she will talk to you openly about the assurance that she has of the life to come. Eric is on the other side of things. He's in his mid-thirties. He lives in one of those red-bricked houses, semi-detached in the suburbs. You know the type, don't you? Plenty of them around Bloomfield. He's married to the lovely Eva, and they've one of those beautiful designer dogs called a Labradoodle. Have you seen them? Yeah? And you know what they're like. Eric was a a keen Christian in his teenage years and into his university days. But over the last few years, he's drifted away from gathering with other Christians. And what was once a warm affection for Christ and his people has now become an indifference and apathy. He will still claim an allegiance to Christ because of his early years. But who knows? And as we come this evening to explore the passage before you in Hebrews chapter 4, the question is this, what warnings, hope, promises, and motivation can you and I and the likes of Valerie and Eric take from this passage? Let's come and discover what it is. And I just want to start by looking at this. Did did you see the recurring phrase or word that occurred throughout chapter 4? Did you pick up on it? Entering the rest or their rest, occurs numerous times in chapter 4 and towards the end of chapter 3. And you can only understand this rest if we delve back into that previous chapter, which Bill looked at last week, where, if I have it open in front of you, you see verses 12 to 19 has been speaking about what we'll term the wilderness generation, that generation that were taken out of slavery from Egypt by God, rescued, and then they were bound for the promised land. We've been thinking about that this evening. But in their rebellion and unbelief, they turned away from the living God and his word, and God swore that they would never enter his rest. And verse 19, do you see it? They were not able to enter because of their unbelief. That generation, apart from a few, died in the wilderness and never entered the promised land. Listen to how the book of Numbers summarizes what is about to happen. You'll see it on the screen. It says this, Numbers 14. Your children were shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken and will surely do these things to the whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. So when the author of Hebrews speaks of rest at the latter part of chapter 3, it is referring to the promised land. And you can understand how the promised land would have been understood as rest to the people, can't you? Here were a nomadic people, at one stage slaves, then liberated, 
wandering around en route to, that pro- to the promised land that was promised to their grandfather years and years back, Abraham. The land itself was described as land flowing with milk and honey. The promised land rest would be the place they would settle down and into. No more wandering around. It would be the place in which they enjoyed. It would feel secure, enemies defeated, and it would have been the place they would have called home with their God. At last, we're in the promised land, going from slaves to our own land, a place where I can put down my my peg and say, this is home. They could have sang with us tonight with the hope. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. That was the hope. But because of their unbelieving hearts, their waywardness, that biblical term, their stiff-necked people, their faithlessness, that generation missed out on entering into the promised land. And chapter 3, verses 12 to 19 is a warning. Do you see it there in verse 12? To the listeners of Hebrews in the New Testament. Because here's what it says in verse 12. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Verse 15, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Literally, don't be like the wilderness generation. That is the warning to Christians in verses 12 to 19. But if that's the warning in verses 12 to 19, well, then chapter 4, verses 1 to 13 is the promise. Because chapter 4 opens, do you see it, with the following words, therefore, because of all that was said before, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. The author of Hebrews here in verse 1 is saying that the promise of entering God's rest still stands. And so let's, not, let's be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Be careful not to have been fallen short of this rest because, do you see verse 2, we're just like the wilderness era. Verse 2 says, we and they have had the good news proclaimed to them. But the message to the wilderness generation was of no value to them. Why? Because they responded to it with unbelief and disobedience. And what you see in verse 2 is that faith and obedience is the way, it is the means by which we enter the rest. And we're not to fall short of it. Faith and obedience, I guess... The danger in evangelical circles for us is that we often believe that because I've said the sinner's prayer or made some profession of faith at one point in my life, because I was a keen Christian like Eric in my teenage years or my adolescent years or my university years, that we've entered God's rest, done and dusted, I'm on the bus to heaven. And that can sometimes be the mentality And you and I have met numerous people, and you may be one of them, who will say to you, I became a Christian 15, 20 years ago at a camp or at university. And you know what? Sometimes that sense of rest can lead to drifting away, to not being careful about what we've heard from God's Word. And the question is, could we, who've heard the good news just like the wilderness generation, could we fall short through unbelief and disobedience when it comes to being able to enter God's rest. The wilderness generation were rescued 
but that didn't mean they entered the rest of the promised land. And the author of Hebrews goes on in verses 3 to 5, keep your eye on it, to show two things. The first is this, that the promise of entering God's rest has not been pulled or scrapped because that generation were disobedient and unfaithful. The Hebrew author in verse 3 is quoting Psalm 95 verse 11, which Bill took us to last week. That Psalm is, is written years after the Exodus in the wilderness generation to highlight that the rest is still on the table. The promise still stands. The second thing in these verses, verses 3 to 5, is that the author is showing us that rest was not just connected with Exodus and the promised land, but that rest was brought in by God himself after his own creation work when it was completed. Verse 4, do you see it? It's quoting from Genesis 2.2, where Genesis 2.2 says this, by the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. The Sabbath rest of God. Did God do nothing? Probably not. Did he savor and enjoy what he had created? Probably. God rested. God rested in the perfection of his creation. He rested from work, rested in relationship with the blessed Trinity. And it is wonderful to think that God himself rested from his creation work And that later, in the Ten Commandments, God instructed his people to do what? To take a Sabbath day rest. And that principle still holds today. Now, whether you believe Sunday to be the Sabbath rest or one day in the week as a Sabbath rest, the key thing is that God has insisted that the people take a Sabbath day rest. And I wonder about this. Just think about this, because parts of this is quite confusing. Was it to remind us of the ultimate rest that was to come. Here is God resting after his creation. And was it, and then it's instructed in Exodus 20, for us to take a Sabbath day rest, reminding us that ultimately there is a major rest coming. I found Peter O'Brien very helpful on this in summarizing both the rest of Cana and the rest that God took. He says this, the rest of Cana was a type or symbol of the rest that God intended for his people, which was prefigured in the Sabbath rest of God, according to Genesis 2.2. O'Brien goes on and he says this, Sabbath was not simply a day of sensation, of activity. Tie up the, the swings. It wasn't a day of that. But one in which rest and praise belong together. Festivity and joy, worship and praise of God. When we don't enter a Sabbath day rest, What we're saying and communicating is, firstly, disobedience. Why? Because God commands it of us. Second, what we do is faithlessness. Because if you own a business, or if you own work like a university student, it takes faith to take a day off from your work, doesn't it? I could be earning a few more bob here. I could be studying for that A instead of getting a B on my Sabbath day rest. Or if you take sport into it, it, it's a bigger step of faith, isn't it? It's a leap of faith. And when we don't, we're both disobedient and faithlessness in taking rest. And we're exhibiting traits similar to the wilderness generation. So far, we see here in this passage that there is rest offered in the form of the promised land. This rest of sorts was already seen in God's creation rest in Genesis. And this takes us to verses 6 to 8. Keep your eye on it. 
And we're told in verse 6 that there is still some to enter that rest. And that God in verse 7 has set today as the time to enter. And so don't harden your hearts to God's voice. These verses remind us, don't they, of the gracious, the slow to anger, abounding character of God in his love, where he's continually holding out the promise of rest to people like you and I. There is rest still on the table. And this moves us to consider what the rest looks like for us today in verses 8 to 10, what I've called the ultimate rest. However good the promised land rest was, and Joshua entered into it, it never lasted. They eventually were kicked out through their disobedience, which led to exile again because of sinfulness. And since the Exodus period, we've moved on in redemptive history. We're no longer looking for rest in a physical land. That's controversial because some are still caught in that, that land physically belongs. And that is why verse 9 says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their work, just as God did from his Sabbath. There is a rest to be experienced. But the question you have, isn't it, I hope, what is it? What is this rest? I hope the following scriptures or passages give you some ideas. If you're a note taker, um, keep with me. We're told in Hebrews 11 that Abraham, the guy in Genesis, saw rest in the following way. We're told in Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10, he said, by faith he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city whose foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Elsewhere, the scriptures speak of rest being connected with the unshakable kingdom that is to come. Hebrews 12, we'll get to it at some point later in this term. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Peter O'Brien says again, God's resting place will be an eternal festive Sabbath celebration. Sounds great, doesn't it? And then that lovely passage, which we often hear at funerals, Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eye. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. There is a different imagery in the scriptures connected with God's rest. A city, a kingdom, celebration, new heavens, new earth. It will be where God will be with his people forever, an eternal rest. So if this is true, that there is an ultimate rest for the people of God, where no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him, if that is true, then you can understand why the author of Hebrews writes chapter 4, verse 11, can't you? It says, let us therefore make every effort to enter 
that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. You cannot enter God's rest by drifting into it or paying nominal lip service to God. It says in verse 11, make every effort, and that has to be tied up with faith and obedience. Faith and obedience are the marks of the true follower of Jesus Christ. In John 15, one abiding memory with God, with Jesus and his apostles is this. He says, remain in me, and I will remain in you. You can't bear fruit without me. If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Obedience is a mark. The ultimate rest, it is God's gift to the faithful and obedient pilgrim at the end of his days when he ceases from his labor as God did from his. It's a gift for the faithful and obedient. I want to spend a bit of time just thinking how this applies to us tonight. As you think about this rest that is to come, is that rest not motivation for you and I as we continue to follow Christ in our work, in our home, and our church life together? Together, making every effort to enter God's rest. Is it not motivation for Valerie as she gets older in life, as her thoughts focus more on what is to come? Surely the promise of eternal rest is motivation for her to continue in faithfulness and obedience to Christ because his rest still stands. Is it not a warning to you and I who are like Eric to reevaluate our claim to be followers of Christ and to ask yourselves, how am I making every effort to, to enter the rest offered by God? And surely this is motivation, this eternal rest is motivation for the trials that you're going through, for the hardships and the persecutions that it is coming. You will have eternal rest one of these days and it'll be forever. It won't be a measly 70, 80 years. It will be forever. The question is, what does it mean to make every effort for us here tonight? And one of the differences in this is the difference between justification and sanctification. The difference between being declared right and working that out as the Spirit is sanctifying you and making you more like Christ. Some of us think, I've been justified and I can do whatever I like. Some of us think, I'm on the bus to heaven. I said the prayer of prayer and then there's no fruit, no obedience, no faithfulness to Christ. That doesn't seem to match up. Because if you're declared right before God, he gives you desires that will push you to faithfulness and obedience in following him. And that's a key difference in working this out of what it means to make every effort. The foundation is laid. You work from that, from obedience and faith. Can I suggest some ways of making every effort as we've seen already in Hebrews? We are to make every effort to enter God's rest by 3.12. Do you see it? by encouraging one another day on day so that none of us fall short of entering his rest. That's a challenge to us, isn't it? That as we come on a Sunday, as we come in our home groups, that we are to encourage one another to faithfulness and obedience, 
and to continue that. We're to make every effort to enter God's rest because already the author of Hebrews has highlighted some potential downfalls. In 2.1, he said, pay more careful attention to the word. Don't drift. Don't be tempted. We're open to having sinful, unbelieving hearts which turn away from God. We have the potential to hear his voice but harden our hearts. I was trying to think of an example of this. I'm going, our kids, my kids are going to kill me if I keep preaching like this. One of our kids, I won't name them. Um, if, if I call for her attention, it's one of the three, anyway. Um, she will sometimes just look away. She hears me, but there's a little bit of what the Bible terms hardening your heart because she's not responsive. She's hearing me, and you can see a little smirk on her face that she hears me, but doesn't turn to give attention to it or act upon what I'm asking. And we can be a bit like that, can't we? Where we hear God's word and the potential of having two services a day in home groups and everything is that we hear it so much that we hear his voice, but our hearts, hearts are hardened to him. And the question is this, how do we not become like the wilderness generation? How do we prevent drifting, not paying attention to the word? How do you keep your heart humble and believing in faithfulness and obedience. And I think verses 12 and 13, they seem like they're a tag on, but they're not. Because verses 12 and 13 are here to encourage us and warn us. How do you prevent this drifting? How do you keep a humble, believing heart? How do you encourage one another? God has given us his word, and in verse 12 it tells us that God's word is living and powerful sharper than a double-edged sword. It goes deeper into our souls and spirit. It judges thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Wow. I don't trust my own judgments and assessments of where my heart attitude and behavior is. We hear a lot about, I know myself today. That's a dangerous place to be in. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, it tells us. I could think to myself that I'm within the covenant family of God. I'm secure. I'm safe. But who am I to judge that? But rather, God's word should be our judge. It's alive and active, drawing us to a greater knowledge and love of God. And so these verses are to be taken real, that God can judge our attitudes. It penetrates. It's sharper than your mind and your conscience and your own evaluation. But there's more. Nothing is hidden from God to whom we give account, verse 13. I'm going to get this wrong. I don't know if you've ever heard, heard the big news this week about Brad Pitt and Angelina. What's, what's the name? Give me the double... Brangeline. Brangeline. Yeah, I was trying to put it together and it'll look right and spell check, put it off. <laughs> sadly, sadly, they're filing for divorce. And the question you have to ask is why? And I just put down because things behind the scenes were hidden. Tiger Woods and his infamous crash a couple of years ago revealed so much about his life that was hidden. And verse 13 is a warning and encouragement for us that nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is laid bare, naked, exposed before him to whom we give account. You and I can hide a sinful, unbelieving heart from anyone in this room, but you can't hide it from God. He knows Nothing is hidden. You and I can hide behind performance and appearance, 
but God knows nothing is hidden. We will one day give account to Him. So while it is today, make every effort to continue in faith and obedience, motivated by that ultimate rest that is to come. We as a church family don't want any one of us falling short of entering God's ultimate rest through disobedience and faithlessness. So let's encourage one another, as long as it is today, to make every effort through obedience and faith to enter God's eternal Sabbath rest so that we all hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight, and we confess, Lord, that we are just like this wilderness generation. We have the potential, Lord, to have sinful, unbelieving hearts, to think that God is on our side, to think that we have entered some rest. And yet, Father, help us, we pray, not to fall short of making every effort to enter your eternal rest. Father, we thank you for that all for all that Jesus has done. We thank you for his righteousness and perfection. Father, we thank you for the Spirit of God who lives in us, who gives us those desires to follow after you. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to act upon those desires so that we would be faithful and obedient people of God. Father, we're not the ones to assess our own hearts and minds we thank you for the gift of your word, which is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged. Thank you that it can pierce and judge our thoughts and attitudes of heart. And we pray tonight, save us from an unbelieving and sinful heart, we pray. Help us to make every effort of encouraging one another in obedience and faithfulness to you so that one day, as we take our Sabbath day rests in this place, that one day we will enter that ultimate rest where we will dwell in that holy city, that unshakable kingdom, which is nothing without you being there. Father, we look forward to hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Lord, help us to make every effort and Lord, help us to encourage one another in doing so, we pray, for the glory and honor of your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you. And we acknowledge that everything that we have and all that we are comes from you and we, so th we thank you for your many blessings and your gifts that you give us. And Father, we thank you that we can come before you with confidence and boldly, knowing that the prayers that we bring, the requests that are spoken and unspoken tonight, knowing that you hear, knowing that you will answer and knowing that you're able to do more than what we could ever ask or imagine. And so tonight, we pray for ourselves here as a family in Bloomfield, 
Father, we thank you that you have placed us here as part of your body. And Lord, we long to serve you here and we long to reach out to a community who does not know you. And Lord, we want to support one another as well because you tell us to bear one another's burdens. And Lord, you know and you see what they are. And sometimes we know too. Many times we don't. And so, Lord, for those among us who are struggling because of sickness, because of fear, because of having to support ones in our family who are ill or old or don't know you and the worry that that brings. Lord, thank you that you know. Thank you that you are able. And would you help us to look out for one another? Would you help us to walk that path through that dark valley, pointing one another to our shepherd? And Lord, we thank you for this conference that's going to take place here in a few Saturdays' time. And Lord, we know in the day and age that we live in, the stress and the pressure and the darkness and depression, it's very real. And just because we know you does not make us exempt from it. And so, Lord, we want to pray for those among us who struggle with these things. Thank you, Lord, that you know and we ask that you would minister to them in a way that only you can. We pray that even through this conference, it would bring help and hope for those who are in this place. Lord, we know that we are in a battle because you tell us that we are. And yet, Lord, thank you that you do not leave us helpless. You have given us your armor. And so with the shield of faith, that helps us to fight against the fiery darts of the evil one. Lord, for that helmet of salvation that we'll put on to protect our mind. And Lord, for the sword of the Spirit, the word of God that we've already thought about tonight that is living and active. Thank you that in you we find all that we need to live lives in the journey that you have placed us on here. And Lord, we think of our world as well tonight, this world that you so love. And yet, Lord, when we turn on our televisions or when we look on the internet, we could just be so filled with despair and hopelessness. Yet, Lord, we remind ourselves tonight that you are on the throne, that you are sovereign, and that you hold all things together. And yet, Lord, just this week, we look at the images from Aleppo, and we lift the country of Syria before you again tonight. And we cry out, how long, O oh Lord? Lord, would you work in that place? Lord, thank you that goodness triumphs over evil. And yet it does not seem like that when we see the images of death and destruction. When we see aid convoys being blown up and water supplies being cut off. And yet, Lord, we thank you that in you we know that we have hope and that you are able, Lord, to work in that situation. And we think of that baby that was lifted from the rubble. So, Lord, tonight in that place, you're the father of all comfort and of mercy. And so, Lord, would you minister to the people in that place? Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace, 
Would you pour your peace out on that land? Would you grant wisdom to politicians and to those in government and power? Lord, we think of President Assad tonight and we think of how in the mornings we've been looking at Pharaoh and how you were able to work in his heart. And so we pray that for this man tonight. Lord, we thank you that you love the people in that land, even the rebels, Lord. We pray for them because you tell us to pray for our enemies. And Lord, for those people, the innocent who are suffering, and it seems to be without end. Lord, tonight, even tonight, for, for your people, especially in that place, would you minister to them? Would you bring them healing and peace and hope? Lord, we don't know what else to pray, but we thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that we can be assured that you see and that you know. And so we leave this land before you and we ask that you would show mercy and bring your peace. Father, we thank you for Frank and Claire and for Frank being here with us this morning. And we thank you that just as you equipped Moses to lead your people, Lord, that you equip Frank for all that he has to do in the places, the engagements, the busyness, Father, we pray that he will know the zeal of your Holy Spirit. We pray that he will not feel burnt out or empty, but Lord, that he will know your empowering for everything and every engagement, Lord. Lord, that even from his messages and his visits, that there would be those as he opens the word of life would come to know you. And we pray your blessing on Frank and Claire and Ruth. So, Father, would you help us to be faithful and continue on to pray for one another and pray for this world? For you're the only answer and you're the only hope. We thank you for all that we have in you. And we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, the one who came to be the hope and to be the saviour of this world. In his name. Amen. We've been singing, as you set your heart on him, as you make every effort to enter his rest, may you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you now and always. <laughs>